So obviously we're closing out Galatians tonight, and as Rachel just read, it may have seemed to you like Paul's just spouting off a number of like last and final instructions. Anybody else feel that as you're hearing this? Paul kind of feels like that at the end of most of his letters, but he really has an idea of what he's trying to tease through. But as I was wrestling with just how Paul comes across at the end of Galatians here, he feels like a parent that's leaving their child to, with someone that's going to watch their child for the very first time, all right? So you've seen this in commercials, or you've seen this in movies, or you've seen this in TV shows, where you have a parent that they have this little child, and they've like coddled the child. They have never been apart from the child. And when they take it to the in-laws, they take their child to the in-laws. Not trying to talk about babies as it's, sorry. Um, when you take the Bible to, or <laughs> the Bible, you take the baby to your family, and you're dropping it off. This, this is Cherish and I's story. We, we drop off our, our kids with those that we know. We love them. We trust them with our kids. But you're spouting off all the final instructions. You're trying to leave the, the house. What happens usually in the TV shows or the movies is you have the husband that's trying to pull the wife away from the kids, pull the wife out of the house as she's spouting off all these final instructions to those that are watching the kids in their absence. And that's sort of how Paul comes across here. So he shares that, hey, kids, you should share all your good things. All the good things that you have, like share them with one another. Don't get tired of doing good. Work for the good of all. Let no one cause me trouble. And then finally, like, may God's grace be with your spirit. Peace and bounce, right? Like it just kind of feels like a parent that's dropping off kids with someone that's going to watch them for the very first time. But as we get into this, here's what we're going to find. Paul actually has a rhyme to, and a meaning and a rhythm to everything that he's laid out for us here. And it all hinges on one illustration that we find within the heart of this passage. So here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to wrestle with the illustration. And we're going to tease it out over the course of this passage. We're going to, what does it mean? And then how do we actually practice it? And after we do that, we're going to also consider a problem. A problem that if you've been walking with Jesus over any sort of time, you've experienced this problem in light of living out this illustration. And so we're going to try to tease out this problem and how do we respond to it as we close out the book of Galatians. All right, so first, we're going to consider the illustration that Paul gives us in this passage so that we can begin to tease it out. And we find it in verse 7. So here's what verse 7 says. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever a person sows, he will also reap. So Paul gives us the illustration here. It's the idea of sowing and reaping. All right, this is what the Bible, what Bible teachers call this is it's an absolute principle. You reap what you sow. So Paul's not talking about this idea of karma as if it's fortune, that if I do good that hopefully good will come back to me with, without any kind of ink, like connections that are happening in life. What Paul is teasing out for us here is that this is actually a principle that's ingrained into the fabric of life. That when you sow something, you reap something. He's shown that there's interconnectedness to our life. That the actions and the words and the deeds, the things that we do in this life, actually there's a lot of connection to what we end up seeing come out in the fruit of our life, and it's in this idea of you reap what you sow. And so here's how it works, all right? So Paul's drawing from agriculture. For farmers to have a harvest, three things must happen. 
They must sow seed. A farmer has to go out and actually sow seed. If a farmer expects a harvest at the time of reaping, then he has to actually do the work months ahead of time to actually go out and plant the seed. That seems like a duh, right? I mean, if you want crops, then you have to go set out the seed, but it continues on. You must also sow good seed. You can't just cut corners, go to the market, and what is really cheap and also not great in terms of seed, you buy that and then you just begin to scatter that out and then expect that you're going to get great crops. No, you have to make sure that what you're investing in is actually worth your money, that what you're sowing in the field is actually good seed that's going to produce good crop. But then it keeps going. You not only just go out and sow the seed, you must sow a lot of the seed. You can't, if you think about a, like a field, you can't just go out and sow one row of good seed and then hope that the whole entire field is going to be filled for a ripe harvest. No, you have to do all, they all, all these are necessary for a farmer to reap a good harvest at the proper time. And Paul's saying this is an agricultural principle that can be applied to all of life. So think of just about your personal health, all right? So if you want to be physically fit, what do you have to do? Speak to me. What do you have to do? You have to exercise. You have to work out, right? So there's actually something that is required of you if you're wanting and wanting to be physically fit, you have to work out. There, nutrition's a part of this. We're not going to go there for this example. You're, and you can thank me later because we're Americans. We like our food. Amen? All right, so not only do you work out, your workout must consist of good reps and not just bad reps. You've all seen memes or reels about somebody that goes to the gym. They're there. They're putting in, good, they're putting in work, but it doesn't mean it's good work. I mean, you're thinking about the guy that's laying down on the mat and he's doing crunches, but all he's doing is like lifting his head. That's not a good rep. Like, that's not gonna, that's gonna, that doesn't bring good apps. You know what I'm saying? Like, that doesn't produce anything. You have to actually have good reps that goes into it. But then also, if you want full body health, you can't just go do bench press and expect swole legs. Amen? A bunch of chicken dudes walking around, right? You, You can't just go and bench press and then expect, like, I'm just gonna be jacked over the course of my entire body. No, you have to actually do the whole body. You have to think about the whole of it and what you're doing in order to produce the results that you expect in the workout that you're applying to your life. And Paul says this absolute principle that you reap what you sow can actually be applied to your spiritual life as well, your spirituality. In order to reap the fruit of the Spirit, Paul gives us three things that have to happen in this passage. And here they are. First is that you must sow the gospel. The second is you must sow the gospel well. And then third, you must sow the gospel well over the long haul. All right, let me unpack this for us. We see first that you must sow the gospel in verse six. Here's what verse six says. Let the one who has taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. All right, so this seems like a tad confusing. 
Let's unpack it. First half of the verse and second half of the verse, all right? So Paul says first, let the one who is taught the word. Here's what Paul's speaking of. Paul's speaking of a church that is committed to knowing the gospel. Let the one who is taught the word. It's committing yourself to the instruction of the scriptures in order that you know the gospel. Taught here means catechesis. If you've been in D groups, you know that we work through a catechism. It's this body of teaching that's put together by the the church that teaches both content as well as disciplines. You want to know the content of the good news of Jesus, but then there's also requirements in terms of discipline and what it looks like to live it out. And so the church comes together and they're committed to knowing the gospel and we see how the church shows the gospel that it's committed to knowing the gospel in the last half of the verse because Paul says they share all their good things with the teacher. And this gives definition to the churches, the church who's committed to knowing the truth of the gospel. Share here means that you have deep fellowship. You have deep fellowship, deep partnership. The teacher of the church is not a pushy boss, but a genuine friend. So here's what that means. The teacher is not disconnected and unknown from the body. Rather, the teacher is approachable and available to the body that is being given instruction. So there's a deep fellowship. There's a genuine friendship. The, the teacher actually knows that those that are part of the body cares about those that are in the body, what's going on in their life, and continues to step in. He's approachable, but he's also um, available to those that are a part of the body. His life is, he's saying, my life is yours. I'm opening up my life to you. And then the church body is not passive pawns, but full participants in what it looks like to be committed to knowing the gospel, which means they're not inconsistent and they're not disengaged, but rather they're committed and they contribute. So one way the church body shows that there's a commitment to knowing the gospel here from what Paul says is that there's financial contribution to the church. This was what all good things means. Every Bible teacher that I read studying for this text relates that all good things here means financial support, all right? So here's what this means both practically and spiritually, all right? Practically, gospel instruction requires some in the church to be set aside for the instruction to the church. The idea, Luther talks, Martin Luther talks about this, that the scriptures and getting into them and unpacking the truths of the scriptures and then, and then trying to think through the life of the people to bring the truth of God's word to their life in a way that resonates with what they're experiencing in this world requires a lot of time and study and intent in order to draw out those truths for the life of the body. But spiritually, here's what this also means. It means our hearts follow our money. Paul's saying this idea of being committed to knowing the gospel is a discipleship issue. We see this in Jesus' instruction. It's not something that's like new with Paul here. 
Jesus in Matthew 6, 21 tells us that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So when Paul's saying that they give financial contribution to the church, being a church that's committed to knowing the truth of the gospel, yes, it's practically speaking, we're going to set money aside so that there are a few in the church that can devote themselves to unpacking this truth for us. But secondly, Paul's saying you recognize that where your heart is, where your money is, there your heart also goes. And so he's saying you give sacrificially in order to show that my heart is committed to knowing the gospel. So whenever you put all this together, it means that this whole commitment to knowing the truth of the gospel is not this consumeristic endeavor, but is actually a deep, deep partnership that takes place in the life of the church. A, peop- a people that are willing to sacrifice in order to know the truth of the gospel, someone that's willing to lay aside work in order to devote themselves to unpacking and teasing out and instructing a group of people in the knowledge of the gospel. What Paul is saying is this is an emphatic declaration from the whole saying, we want to know the gospel. It's the work of sowing the gospel in your life. It's a holistic work. It's a work that requires the entire body of Christ working together, partnering together in deep fellowship and deep sacrifice in order to know the truth in their life. So it's from head to heart to hand, the church is declaring we are bought into knowing the gospel. So the first step to sowing and reaping the gospel is that you know it. There's deep devotion there. But secondly, is that you sow the gospel well. And I'm speaking more to direction here than I am skill. Let me read verses seven through eight and then I'll unpack it for us. So verse seven says this. Don't be deceived, which is in essence sort of the whole entire theme of the entire gospel or the entire letter of Galatians. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. In verse 8, because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let's take another like Zach Morris timeout. All right? Say it by the bell if you don't know that reference. Um, Zach Morris, he would stop, and then in the middle of it, you call timeout, the whole scene would stop, and he gives instruction or he gives context. So what Paul's doing, he's referring a lot back to Galatians chapter 5 here. If you remember back to Galatians 5, we talked about how there is an inner battle that's taking place in every single Christian. And it's a battle between flesh and spirit. We're related, the Christian, to that of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Jesus tells Lazarus to rise from the dead The stone is rolled away, and the Bible tells us that Lazarus comes out still wrapped in the garments of death. If you die, um, they wrap you in garments and anoint your body with spices and oils in order to cover the deterioration of your body. And so what happens is Lazarus is alive, fully alive inside because of Jesus, but he's still wrapped in the garments of death, which are the flesh for us. 
And so what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to tease out that in our life on a daily, regular basis, we're making contributions to this battle of flesh and spirit that's waging war inside of us. And he's using this analogy of sowing and reaping to give it life to us, to illustrate it for us. So here's what Paul says. Time back into Galatians chapter six. Paul tells us to think of our life like a farm. All right, so I didn't grow up around farms, but I've been to Eckert's farm. Anybody else there with me? So here's what I've seen whenever I've gone to Eckert's, right? There's a variety of fields. There's a variety of fields. You have apple orchards. You have the places where you go get your pumpkins. Um, some places have, they're like strawberries. There's a time in the season where strawberries are there. And what Paul is saying is this, it's the same with our life. The fields of our life are the fields of the flesh and the field of the spirit. And we are constantly sowing the seeds of our thoughts, our words, and our actions in the direction of one of these two fields in every aspect of our life. And whenever we are making these deposits, there's slowly and progressively fruit that's being bore in our life. And it's the fruit of the flesh or it's the fruit of the spirit, which we all saw back in Galatians chapter five. And so what Paul is saying, every aspect of your life is a matter of whether you are sowing the seed of word, thought, and action in the direction of the field of the flesh or the field of the spirit. So here's what this looks like for us. When we sow to the field of the flesh, we do things like this. We harbor a grudge. We entertain impure thoughts. We wallow in self-pity. We look at provocative images on a screen. We participate in gossip that's taking place around us. These are all the sowing of the seeds in the fields of the flesh. They're the actions where we are making deposits in the battle that's taking place in our soul. We're placing deposits in that battle that's taking place in us, either in the field of the flesh or the field of the spirit. And those are deposits in the field of the flesh. Here's what it looks like for making deposits in the field of the spirit. When we extend forgiveness... When you look at the gospel and you are at wonder that God could love you and forgive you for the things that you've done in your life, you're making deposits into the field of the spirit in light of the truth of the gospel. You're saying, I can't believe that God has so forgiven me. How could I not forgive another person? You're making a deposit into the field of the spirit. When you confess sin, when you bring the sin that's in the dark crevices of your life out to the light and draw that out and you share it with other people, this is a deposit into the field of the spirit. You're saying that I am waging war. I'm putting to death the entanglement of sin that wages war inside of me. I'm calling it out so that it's put to death by making it known to other people. That's a deposit into the field of the spirit. Anytime that you practice fairness and justice in your workplaces, that you're not showing favoritism, but you're actually showing equality to all that are at your work. You're making deposits into the field 
of the Spirit. Anytime that you're honest. Honesty's hard, isn't it? When there's something that you don't want have to, you don't want to have to tell somebody else, but you live into telling and being honest and telling the truth rather than lying and trying to cover up, you're making deposits into the field of the Spirit. This is what it looks like. It's not a matter of skill. It's a matter of direction. All right? Now, I want to tease out two things. There's two things I want us to recognize here. All right? So Paul's building on things here. So it is absolutely essential that we as a church are committed to the truth of the gospel, to knowing the gospel. But here's what we need to see. Gospel knowledge does not equate in the gospel fruit. You can know the content of the gospel, but then never truly live by it. I had a guy, I worked at a bank immediately after college. And um, one of the guys that I was working with, um, he would talk to people about Jesus constantly, regularly. That's a beautiful thing. But what happened is he would talk to these people constantly about Jesus, but then he was regularly caught lying at work. And then he also, co-workers, saw him on the weekends and saw him leading a double life. Now, this isn't just a poor witness to the truth of the gospel, but it actually affects his life. What Paul says is anytime that we're making these deposits into the field of the flesh or the field of the spirit, it's either reaping destruction or it's reaping life for us. And what he was doing is... Even though outwardly, or through his mouth, he was giving proclamation to Jesus, he was, he was sharing Jesus, he wasn't living in the, the truth of it. He wasn't actually, he knew the content, but he wasn't living it out with his life. And here's the things that happened for him. At work, he wasn't trusted. People didn't trust him. He would lie about the time that he showed up at work and there was never an opportunity for promotion or advancement for him. There was just constant distrust that was leading more towards his termination than it was his growth in the life of the work. But then relationships, there was also a lack of respect. People looked at what he would talk about, but then they would look at the action of his life and they didn't measure up. And it led to a lack of respect for him. Gospel knowledge does not equate gospel fruit. Here's what we actually see is knowing the gospel plus the application of the gospel is what actually leads to gospel fruit in your life. Here's what I'm not saying. You don't have to know all of the truth of the gospel in order for you to begin to apply it. Because here's the reality. The, the depths of the gospel are something that we can't fully mine in this life. We won't actually be able to unlock all the mysteries of the truth of the gospel until we see Jesus face to face. That, here, that's a good news for us. That means that we believe in a gospel that is so profound and so godly that we need to actually see God face to face to experience the fullness of our resurrection, to be made like Jesus in its full totality for us to fully comprehend just how big and amazing and awesome the gospel is. But what it also means is you don't have to have the 
full knowledge that when we stand before Jesus, we'll finally receive in order for us to begin to apply it. We need to know the basic core aspects of the truth of gospel for us to step into relationship with Jesus, that Jesus has done everything for you and he's paid your sin, your debt in full and then he's attributed his status as child of God to you. That's what you need to know. And we can begin to apply that. Now, here's why I'm saying all of this, all right? Because as we begin to apply, even though we're still always growing in our knowledge of the truth of the gospel, we can always begin to apply it and it produces something in our life. So I, last week I gave you in the opening a, an example from Billy Graham. I called him Billy G, all right, evangelist. Uh, he would preach the good news of Jesus to large groups. He also had a lot of influence. He talked to um, presidents on a regular basis throughout his ministry. There was one time after he had preached the good news of Jesus to large groups of people, he got cornered by a group of reporters. And here's what happened in Billy G's life. In that instance, he got cornered with a lot of really hard, challenging questions. And he didn't answer well. He was skittish. He had to acknowledge, I, I don't know what the answer to that question is, but here's what people took away from the encounter. They said what stood out to them was not that Billy Graham didn't know the answers to their questions, but it was the demeanor in which he treated the reporters that stuck with them. You know what that is? That's gospel fruit. It's gospel fruit. It doesn't mean you have to know everything. The man that was on the middle cross next to Jesus, or on the, on the cross next to Jesus, when he got into heaven, he did not have all the answers. The, when he was asked, why are you here? All he could do is point to Jesus. He told me, like, Alistair Begg says, that guy said I could come in. That's, that's the truth of the gospel. He did everything for me. And we can begin to apply that to our life. It doesn't mean you have to have all the answers, but it does mean that we have to apply the knowledge of the gospel to our life and it leads to gospel fruit. It's all about direction, not skill. So it's not the reaping that determines, but the sowing. And so here's a question for you. Where are the seeds of your life being sown? When it comes to your thoughts, when it comes to your words, when it comes to your deeds, which direction? Field of the flesh or the field of the spirit? In order to reap the gospel, you must sow it and you must sow it well. But thirdly, we see in verses 9 through 10, you sow the gospel well over the long haul. Over the long haul. This requires two things. Patience and persistence. To sow the gospel well over the long haul requires first patience, which we see this in verses 9 through 10. Here's what it says. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Here's what Paul is unpacking for us. To reap a harvest takes time. He says, don't give up. It requires your patience. 
We all know at some level, botany, that plant growth happens underground for a much longer time before we actually see above surface the growth that takes place weeks, months down the road. And Paul's saying it's the same with our spiritual growth. As we sow the gospel over the long haul, the Holy Spirit produces growth under the surface that oftentimes goes unseen above the surface in our life until there's points where it's tested. So here's, here's a personal example in my life. When Cherish and I first got married, there was a lot of anxiety that worked itself inside of me regarding our finances. We were poor. <laughs> and so here's what happened. Um, I always had this, I, I had this mentality that we had to be able to pay off everything and then make contributions to savings. And if we weren't living up to my standard, it just produced a ton of anxiety in my life. And I would get really short and I would get really impatient and I would just be a mess, an emotional mess month to month when I got our credit card bill. I'd be like, oh my gosh. And I would just lose it, right? Well, here's what happened this last fall. Um, we had a lot of house stuff that broke down that I've shared some of you with some of you. There also um, was a, a part in our engine that failed $7,000. On top of the things that were going on with our house, with air conditioning and a bunch of other things. And I'm not saying I was perfect in that moment. But here's what I saw, that over the course of my life, over the last 10 years, I've seen what the Holy, only the Holy Spirit can do inside of my life. I was not an emotional wreck like I would have been in the first year of our marriage. God has done something inside of me. What once would have been a reaction of distrust in God's provision in our life, over the long haul, I've seen the course of his provision and time and time again, how he's provided us even in the means of very little, that in my soul, there's still anxiety there. I don't want you to think like I've just arrived. There's still anxiety there, but I didn't unravel. And that's the work of the spirit. That's the work, the internal growth that's happening deep inside of me because over the long haul, I've been committed to the truth of the gospel and working and desiring and praying and longing for growth to happen in my life that the Holy Spirit has produced. So it's a, a patient work, but it's also a persistent work. And we see this in verses 14 through 16. So 11 through 13, you get Paul talking about the teachers and their motives when it comes to this idea of circumcision and keeping the law. Paul's saying essentially they don't actually care about them they're actually more worried about themselves and gaining a following and gaining attraction and gaining prominence. That's what they're more inclined towards. But in verse 14, we see that Paul shares with us as he's been working out through all of the book of Galatians that sowing the gospel is a persistent work. Verse 14 says this, but as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world for both circumcision and uncircumcision. They mean absolutely nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. So may peace come to all those who follow this standard, meaning that they've trusted 
solely in the work of Jesus on their behalf and mercy even to the Israel of God. So here's what Paul is saying. We don't turn to another gospel. In the times and the seasons, over the long haul, as you're committed to the truth of the gospel and you're sowing deposits into the field of the spirit and not field of the flesh, when it seems like the growth is too slow and you're tempted to turn to a different way, Paul's saying you don't turn to another gospel. You are persistent in the work of believing and trusting in the truth of the gospel that Jesus and it's his work alone that matters for you, not what you do. He's drawing out the tendency for us that whenever things are too slow, when things seem to not be progressing in our life, our tendency is always to revert back to old habits. It's always, I need, to, I need to do this myself. This is on me. I'm gonna have to carry this thing forward. I'm gonna have to go to these places that I, I believe are actually gonna bring about results in my life. The gospel doesn't seem to be bringing results in my life. And so I'm gonna go turn to somebody else. Counseling is good, but look, it's not the gospel. We go to counselors that can help us tease out the truth of the gospel. They are not the gospel in and of themselves. But our fleshly desire, our fleshly inclinations are I'm gonna go to somebody else and that's the person that's gonna bring resolution in my life. I'm gonna go back to my patterns that it's gonna be me succeeding and excelling at work that's actually gonna produce the result in my life that I feel that I need. Paul's saying the persistent work of sowing the good seed of the gospel over the long haul is being persistent and not turning away from the truth of the gospel. So these are the three. We sow the gospel. We sow the gospel well. And we sow the gospel well over the long haul, meaning that we're both patient and we're persistent in sowing that good seed of the gospel. Now, if you've walked with Jesus, even for a short time, you've experienced the process of sowing and reaping. You've experienced that it's patient and it's persistent work in reaping the fruit of the Spirit. But you've also experienced a problem. You've experienced a problem. And here's the problem. We all hit roadblocks. We all hit roadblocks. And here's what I mean. It means that you haven't turned from the gospel. You've been faithful in your belief to the gospel, but it seems the work and the prayers that you've been asking God to do for transformation in your life, it just doesn't seem like there's progress. Anybody ever been there? I'm seeing heads shake, but I would like hands next time, please. <laughs> um, we all hit roadblocks. We do this. To reap a harvest requires patience and persistence. However, there are times in our life where we need God to break through. We need God to break through. We sang about this just earlier. Um, some of the lyrics that we sang that the fire goes cold. 
Life seems like a constant night that the daybreak doesn't seem to come. Raging storms taking place in our life. And here's what I, I expect. I'm sensing for us as a church right now is that we are in a season where we need breakthroughs individually and corporately in the life of our church. Here's what I mean. Individually, I've, I've heard a number of you, um, and I don't mean this in any way, like I, I'm here with you, okay? I'm not, if anybody were to like stand and talk about a struggle like, listen, I, I've tried to be apparent, transparent with you from here. Um, that is me. But I've experienced and heard from people that are struggling with, like, an ongoing fear and anxiety in our church. A regular wrestling and struggle with this in their life. Others searching for God's wisdom and direction in their life when it comes to, like, where you're going to move or what occupation you're going to move forward to or the... Um, when you're thinking about your schooling and like the direction and what is going to be your major and how you're going to move forward, there's, you can fill in the blanks, people that are searching for wisdom and direction in their life from God, still others that are battling like deep, severe grief and loss in their life. Others that it feels like the entanglement of sin is just so strong in their life. They don't know how to break free. I've, I've wrestled with Actually, because the, the means of Satan, as we've talked about, is that he wants you to believe that you're the only one that's struggling. I'm not going to have us do this, but if we were, if I were to ask each person that was dealing with one of those things that I, that I just listed off, whether it be fear and anxiety, whether it be wisdom and direction that you need from God, whether it be the battle of sin in your life, whether it be severe grief and you just don't know how to move beyond the cloud of sorrow that's in your life, every single one of us would be standing right now. But we also need this corporately. All right, so we came and we planted Storyline because we wanted to see God continue to grow his kingdom here in St. Louis. Not that he's just gonna do it through Storyline Church, but we wanted to be a church that came and announced the good news of Jesus to our community. And we've experienced roadblocks when it comes to depth of relationship with people here. Or seeing the gospel actually take deep, firm root that we see people that trust in the good news of Jesus here. We, we've seen some growth in that capacity, but not near what we've prayed for. Even whenever we, like, you boil down to search for space and trying to get our Sunday morning, our Sunday gathering to Sunday morning. I mean, it's just been roadblock after roadblock after roadblock of seeing all this take place. Lots of conversations in multiple different places that have happened. And it just seems like there's little fruit that's happening. Regular roadblocks, both individually and corporately, taking place in the life of our church. We need a breakthrough. Like, in a lot of ways, we need God to break through in our life. You feel that with me? Like, we need God. And we're in this place, and a lot of times God allows these roadblocks to happen in your life to, to bring deep the desperation that you have for God himself. God, I've done everything I can in my own willpower. Like, 
even continuing to trust in you, God, you're going to have to do a work. And there's a spiritual practice that Christians and the church have used for thousands of years when it comes to these roadblocks that happen in your life. And it's fasting. It's prayer and fasting. Here's what prayer or fasting is. It's the kale of the spiritual disciplines. <laughs> we all know that it's healthy, but we never choose it. That's what fasting is. Here's my quick definition of fasting. Fasting is a spiritual practice where a Christian seeks direction, correction, or comfort from God by prayerfully denying the wants and needs of our physical bodies, usually but not limited to food, over a short period of time as we await the voice and return of Christ in our life. Not that he's left you, but what feels like a, a lack of experience of his presence and his voice. And here's what Richard Foster says about the practice of fasting. Fasting can bring breakthroughs in the spiritual realm that will never happen in any other way. So for those of us that have been experiencing like these roadblocks in our life, which I believe would just be about any person that would stand up in here at this point in time, God may have you in this place because he wants you to approach him through fasting and prayer in order for God to break through. He may have us in the place that we're at as a church corporately so that we would be a church that fasts and prays so that God would break through. So here's, here's like our application. Here's what I want to call us to as a church, right? I want us to do a church-wide fast. I want us to fast together as a church, that we would pray and that we would pursue God, that he would break through in our life. As a church that's committed to sowing the gospel, as a church that's committed to sowing the gospel well together, as a church that's committed to sowing the gospel well over the long haul, even in the midst of roadblocks, that we are a church that we push through, that we draw near to God through fasting and prayer in order that the thing that only God can do in our life, he breaks through. So here's what this looks like for us, all right? So as you leave tonight, I have a handout. <laughs> I love handouts. Cherish always makes fun of me that any meeting that I do, I always have to have a handout. So this is my handout for you, all right? So what we have coming up is the season of Advent. Advent is a four-week period in the lead up to Christmas Day. And this is what I want us to fast over this four-week period. So if you're thinking about when, what the when of our fast, it's over the course of Advent. Secondly, the what of a fast. Well, what does that look like? How do we do that? I, here's what I like to call us to, a partial fast in your life over that four weeks. Here's what that means. You fast one meal a day for those that can, all right? Here's what I need you to understand. Fasting does not have to do about, it does not have to be the denial of food. Some of us are in a place, whether it's physically or um, medications-wise, we can't do this. We can't step into this. Look, God is not dishonored by you fasting from something else. What he's honored by is your pursuit of him. And so if you can, fast from one meal a day, all right? 
Other options could be television or social media or sports, or you can fill in the blank. You can know exactly what would be a good sacrifice in your life that would draw you closer to God in the absence of it. And here's how we do it. We pray together. Over the course of this time, we are a church that is committed to praying. You go through your normal, regular day routines, but as you give up the meal or you give up one of these things, what you would use with your time towards that particular thing, you're now using the desires that pop up in your, 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 in your mind or in your heart and they serve as reminders to go to God in prayer about that particular thing. The thing that you need breakthrough in your life, the thing that we need breakthrough together corporately as a church, you're praying for God to break through and using the fast as a reminder to pray for those particular things. And then you're also doing it in community. You're inviting others in. So here's, here's what I mean. You're wrestling with a question, where do I need a breakthrough? And then you're wrestling with the question, who am I going to invite into the struggle with me? Where do I need breakthrough? And then who's going to be invited in? This is why we have things like D groups, where we have smaller groups of men and women that we can open our life to, that they can know about the struggles, and then we can lock arms and we can work through that in prayer together. Go talk about it. Go bring it up. Who am I inviting in? All right? And here's, here's my prayer for all of this. I, I pray that this is a moment in our church that we can look back on years from now that we saw God break through in our lives individually. Like the thing that was a regular, constant struggle in my life, I saw God break through. The struggle that we had as a church, we saw God break through. We step in with it. We step into this. Over the course of the next four weeks, will we be a church that fasts and prays that God would break through in our lives? So let's conclude with this as we tie up the whole entire book, all right? We're gonna tie it up like Paul does. Verse 18, Paul says this, brothers and sisters, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, amen. Here's what Paul does. At the beginning of the gospel, or at the beginning of the Galatian, book of Galatians, he starts with the gospel. It's a gospel rebuke. Hey, you've turned from the good news of, of the gospel. Turn back, come back. But look, he ends in the same way. But this time it's a gospel encouragement. Continue on, keep going, keep believing. Paul ends with gospel encouragement. Look, from beginning to end, we need to remember that all of our life as Christians, is now dedicated to the good news of the gospel in our life. Christ alone for you. Let's pray.